Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Thank you, Steve. <clears throat> Hebrew says we have for this hope an anchor for our soul. In this turbulent thing called life, we need an anchor, don't we? That's exactly what that song is about. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you that you are that anchor, that you are steadfast and sure. We can always count on you, no matter what is happening in our lives, what has happened, or what will happen. You say the same, and we thank you for that. And we pray you bless your word this morning. Change us through the teaching of your word. I ask in your name, amen. Chapters 21 through 24 of 2 Samuel form an epilogue of the books of Samuel. This carefully arranged material presents us with important perspectives on the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, and the relationship between the two. The book closes with a record of two national calamities, a drought caused by King Saul's sin in chapter 21, and a plague caused by King David's sin in chapter 24. Between these two tragic events, we are given a summary of four military victories in chapter 21 and a list of David's mighty men in chapter 23, as well as two psalms that were written by David. Once again, we're going to see David the soldier, David the singer, and David the sinner. These chapters look back over the whole period of David's reign. We need to realize that the text is not arranged chronologically, but thematically. The first action will tell of a terrible sequence of events from an unspecified time during King David's reign. It's one of the Bible's most difficult stories. It's not so much difficult to understand as it is difficult to hear and accept. And although the main action involves a relatively small number of people, it's an account of immense personal suffering, unimaginable grief, and what could seem like to us intolerable unfairness. It's a story that could cause us to wonder 
what is going on. We will be spending the vast majority of our time on the first two verses. Look at verse 1 with me. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. We begin our study by seeing that there was a three-year famine sometime during David's reign. However, a three-year famine is not mentioned anywhere in the books of Samuel. The appearance of Mephibosheth in verse 7 narrows down the time frame slightly, and so the famine must have been sometime after the events of chapter 9. Precisely when the famine occurred is unimportant. The focus is on the hardship that it brought. For three whole years, food was in short supply. Harvest failed, and people were hungry. And even those fortunate enough to have never experienced great atrocities have heard about them. The cruelties of war, the atrocities of child abuse, the suffering of poverty. These and so many other horrors appear almost nightly in the news. Most of us do not think about such things because it's just too hard. But the toughest questions are about how and why God allows such things to happen. It is important for us to understand that the reason for any particular terrible event or situation in the world may be ultimately unknowable to us. This is the lesson from the book of Job. There was a reason for Job's suffering revealed to us in chapters 1 and 2, but Job and the other personalities of that book never learn of this. However, it is possible to trust God and that he has his reasons without knowing what those reasons are. Eventually, Job learned to trust God just like that. But at that time, a famine in Israel was often because of a transgression of the law of God. When Israel kept the old covenant, God promised to give them rain. He even said, I'm giving you land that you will not have to water with the foot. I will give you the early and the late rains. But whenever the heavens are shut up and becomes bronze and the ground becomes like iron, that meant most often that idolatry had occurred and so God would turn off the faucet and there would be no more rain. Now, the people may have thought the first year of drought might have been caused by some unexpected change in the weather. And perhaps during the second year, the people would have said, well, it's bound to improve. But when the third year the land suffered drought and famine, David finally sought the face of the Lord. But allow me to pose a question this morning. Why would David wait three years to go to God? I think like many of us, sometimes it takes extraordinary pain to drive us to our knees. So I have to wonder, how many difficulties do we go through? 
How many dry spells and spiritual famine we endure all because we do not diligently inquire of the Lord. The Lord was waiting for David to ask, and when David asked, the Lord answered. I don't want to be unfair to David, but he waited three years to inquire of the Lord about this famine. To me, that's three years of saying, I think I'll wait until tomorrow to see if the situation improves on its own. I think sometimes we can be just like Pharaoh and can just be complacent or stubborn even when our world is crumbling around us. Let me develop that for us. This is Exodus chapter 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? Then the Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. So Moses said, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Amazing. I would have thought Pharaoh would have said, Get them out of here right now. I can't stand them for one more minute. But that's not what Pharaoh said. He said, Tomorrow. Why? He was willing to endure one more night with the frogs. But all mankind can have their own frogs. Here's what I mean. The man might say, there's nothing wrong with looking at a little pornography. I'm just admiring one of God's beautiful creations. Yeah, but I bet you don't look at trees like that. And if you do, we have a whole other set of problems we need to deal with. Or, we only get drunk occasionally, they say. After all, we don't want to seem puritanical and take this Christian thing too far. Or, I know he's not a Christian, she says, but he's getting there. And I know if I keep dating him, one of these days he'll come to church with me. Sure, he seems a little froggy right now, but one day he'll turn into a prince. I just know he will. Pharaoh evidently came to the same conclusion. The frogs covering his land were troublesome indeed, but nothing he couldn't live with for one more night. Did you know there are around 25 million people in America today addicted to alcohol? Yet I guarantee you not one of them opened their first beer or poured that first glass of wine and said, Today I'm going to become one of the 25 million alcoholics. No. Everyone said, I've got this under control. No problem. I can quit whenever I want to. It's not ever going to control me. And we can say the same thing from everything from an unhealthy relationship to a hot temper to a propensity to tell a lie. Until suddenly we wake up one day and we realize that our houses, our ovens, and our beds are all filled with frogs. Until suddenly we realize that that which we once thought we had under control has hopped out of its riverbed and is instead now controlling us. 
It's like that old saying. The Indian took a drink, then the drink took a drink, then the drink took the Indian. Pharaoh came to the stark realization that the frogs were really out of control. They've got to go, Moses, he insisted. Yet when Moses asked him when, he answered, tomorrow. Like that, there are people, activities, and places in our lives about which the Lord would say, you thought you had all that under control and all that hemmed in, but now it's hopped its banks and it's taken over your life. And we say, you're right, Lord, it is. What I'm doing with my computer is out of control. What I'm watching on TV is out of control. What I'm reading, where I'm going, the way that I'm living is all out of control. But when the Lord asks us when we want to be set free, all too, answer, all too often our answer is the same as Pharaoh's tomorrow. The problem is, is by saying tomorrow, Pharaoh's heart grew harder and harder still. You see, he could have gotten off relatively easy had he been serious and said, I want the frogs to go immediately. I'm repenting of what I've been doing. I'm changing my way of living, Moses. You and your people are all free to go. And had he done so, Pharaoh would have spared himself, his family, and that nation the unbelievable horrors that awaited them. The Bible says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Because although there is pleasure in sin for a season, the end result is always destruction. So what are we to do concerning the sin that controls and plagues us? I suggest four things. Remember, repent, reckon, and refuse. Remember. Remember that sin is not bad because it's forbidden, but it's forbidden because it is bad. You see, God doesn't arbitrarily say, this, this, and this are forbidden, therefore they are sin. No, he says, this, this, and this will hurt you, so I forbid them because I know they will eventually destroy you. Now, every sin I've ever committed, will commit, has already been paid for and washed away completely by the blood of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. But because whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap, that means that every sin I've ever planted carries with it its own inevitable repercussions. Therefore, wise is the person who, understanding this principle, stays as far away from that which he knows will hurt not only himself, but the people around him. Next, repent. To repent simply means to change directions. Where you once said, this is okay, change your mind. Make a U-turn. Instead of justifying, rationalizing, and excusing sin, call it what it is and agree with the Lord that it's got to go right now. Thirdly, reckon. Perhaps the most potent passage in Scripture regarding sin is in Romans chapter 6. It tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, not only was the penalty of sin paid for, but the power of sin was broken. 
Oh, but you don't know how strong my addiction is, you say. Perhaps. But I do know this. The Bible says the power of all sin was dealt a death blow on the cross. Therefore, all that remains is for me to reckon it to be true and to quit saying my situation is somehow different. Such statements such as I'm too involved or I'm too addicted only diminish the reality and the potency of what Jesus did on Calvary to set us completely holy and totally free. Now, as believers, we may choose to sin, we may decide to sin, but we never have to sin because the power of Christ resides in us. And he who told us to go our way and sin no more and to be holy because I am holy also gives us the power to carry out those commands. And finally, refuse. Refuse to go where you know the frogs are croaking. You know exactly the people and the places you need to avoid in order to stay free. For example, if you have struggled with alcohol in your past, don't go to the bar to watch the game, even if you're planning on only drinking Pepsi. That's just unwise. And so I find it amazing that Pharaoh would say tomorrow, until I'm honest and analyze my own life and see that the same tendency can be with me. I can hear a truth and say, that's right, Lord, that's got to go. That's got to be corrected, adjusted, changed, and repented of. And I'm going to get right on it tomorrow. How I desire to be one who always says, this is the time right here, right now. Now you who have heard God's word, you who have heard his heart, don't be like Pharaoh and wait for your own heart to harden. Instead say, I'm going to go your way, Lord, not tomorrow, not Tuesday, but today. But back to our text. What caused this famine? Here our difficulties with this story begin. The Lord's word to David clearly implied that there was a connection between blood guilt and the famine now being suffered by the people throughout David's kingdom. The blood guilt is explained in terms of something that Saul had done. He had killed certain Gibeonites. Our problems with this text may be magnified by the fact that this is how the Lord saw this situation. King Saul's deeds had terrible consequences for his whole family and for the nation because of God's view of what Saul had done. They suffered what rightly can be called the wrath of God because of King Saul's action against the Gibeonites. How can that possibly be fair and right? Or return to that question. Now the background of this comes from the book of Joshua about 400 years earlier. God had given the land of the Jews and had told them to destroy all the inhabitants because of their incredible wickedness. But there was a group of people living in the land by the name of the Gibeonites. And they realized that Israel was going to conquer the land and they didn't want to be destroyed. And so they pretended they had came from a very far and distant land and they wanted to begin a treaty with Israel. 
But suspecting that Israel would be suspicious that they came from a faraway land, they said, well, look at us. When we left, the bread that we had was fresh, and now look at all the mold that's on it. And we had new sandals when we started, but now look at how tattered they are. And our toenails look like corn chips. It really didn't say that last part, if you're looking for that. But Joshua didn't pray about this, and so he made a covenant with them that they would look out for one another, and thus Israel wouldn't destroy them. Well, a few days later, Joshua learned that they had all been duped, but because of the covenant, he couldn't kill them, but instead he did make them servants. When the Israelites discover the deception, they consider themselves nonetheless to be bound by the oath they had sworn to them. And so then, sometime 400 years later, King Saul decides to engage in an ethnic cleansing to destroy the Gibeonites, and that's where we pick up our story. Nowhere in Scripture are we told when or why Saul slaughtered the Gibeonites and thus broke the treaty that they had with Joshua's day. Whatever his motive and method, Saul, even in his grave, brought judgment on the people of Israel as the drought and famine continued for three years. That means 40 years later, the effects of that sin were still being felt in Israel. That teaches us that time does not lessen the effects of sin. I have to tell you, Saul's religious life is a complete puzzle to me. Attempting to appear very godly, he would make foolish vows that nobody should keep, while at the same time, he wouldn't obey the clear commands of the Lord. For example, he was commanded to slay the Amalekites and didn't, and yet he tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, which he shouldn't. If you remember, the very first murder in human history was when Cain killed his brother and God declared, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. That tells us that in God's view, blood pollutes the land. But King Saul completely ignored this. And so even though it was agreed on 400 years earlier, the passage of time does not negate the covenant. But that same principle still applies in areas of ultimate moral truth. Proverbs 22:28 says that you are not to move the ancient boundaries set by the forefathers. What that means is, as one generation goes to the next generation, you make sure that as the times change and as the culture changes, our obedience to Scripture does not. Saul had been dead for over 30 years, and the Lord had patiently waited for someone to deal with his sin. Know that our God is incredibly patient. After all, he gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent. But don't ever mistake the patience of God as impotence or apathy. He doesn't judge quickly, but he does judge thoroughly. Verse 3, please. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? 
And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. We see in verse 3 that the outcome David saw was that the Gibeonites would once again bless the people and land of Israel. This would bring the Gibeonites back within the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, where he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. But what the Gibeonites proposed in order to make atonement for this outrage is the shocking aspect of this entire story. But notice, it's not just Saul that is named, but his bloodthirsty house. That will be important later on. This tells us that this travesty apparently included his sons and relatives. Now we know that God's law explicitly prohibited the punishment of the, of the son for the sins of his father all the way through the law of Moses. And since there will be no condemnation of David in this text for turning over these seven men, and since God will honor the action by ending the famine, it seems very, very likely that the seven who were executed had joined Saul and been personally involved in this ethnic cleansing, and thus they bore the guilt of this atrocity. But the Gibeonites didn't want any money. They knew that no amount of money could ransom a murderer or recompense the survivors. Verse 7, please. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. He delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. The story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth gives us this brief reminder. At a terrible time, when the descendants of Saul were to be killed, David remembered his promise to Mephibosheth's father Jonathan and saw that his son was protected. We presume that Mephibosheth lived out the rest of his days under the kindness of King David. In verse 8, we see the name Mephibosheth again, but this was a different Mephibosheth. You wouldn't have thought two parents could have came up with that name twice, would you? And even though David didn't commit the crime, he had to choose the seven men who would die, and I'm sure that wasn't an easy thing to do. To right the wrong that Saul had perpetrated upon the Gibeonites, seven of Saul's grandsons were given to the Gibeonites who hung them on a tree. Now seven represents in the Bible the number of completion. In this, we see the household of Saul being completely judged because of Saul's sin. 
sin will catch up with us sooner or later. It will come to completion. It's always unavoidable. This is what happens, said the Gibeonites. This action that we're doing will be before the Lord. What they're saying is, this will not be an act of vengeance on our part, but a judicial act, like Samuel's execution of Agag back before the Lord, back in 1 Samuel 15. The Lord would be witness to it, and would, the Gibeonites seem sure, approve of it. We today who have the New Testament and the Gospel view this entire episode with perhaps a bit of dismay. But we must keep in mind that we are dealing with the law, not grace, and Israel, and not the church. The law of Moses required that an unsolved murder be atoned for by sacrifice. So how much more a known slaughter perpetrated by Israel's king? But please keep in mind that the death of the seven man was not atonement, but legal retribution. Whatever questions remain concerning this unusual event, this much is true. One man's sin can bring sorrow and death to his family, even after he is dead and buried. As we close this morning, it's very strange to me that sometimes people look upon all the evil that's in this world and they bemoan why God doesn't do something about it. But then, as in our account today, or when God pronounces judgment on the Amorites or the Canaanites, when he does do something about it, people say he's an evil and cruel God. I think we should all be thankful that God doesn't judge us according to what our sins deserve. Think about it. What if every time you lied, one of your teeth fell out? (laughs) Or what if every time you have a lustful, covetous, or angry thought, a big pimple popped up on your forehead? All I'm saying is God knows how and when and where to judge. And the reason we can so quickly sometimes find fault with God for wiping out multitudes of people is because we have have a subjective definition of, of what we think good is. For example, we may define good as helping some 80-year-old lady across the street. Someone watching us do such a task would probably be impressed with our servanthood. However, we often don't see the big picture. For if we knew that sweet old lady was crossing the street to slip cyanide into someone's cup at Starbucks, we hopefully would not have helped her carry out that task. Or we may think it's good to give money to someone on the street who is in need. And while that may seem noble, what if you discover that person was going to use that money to buy crack? It wouldn't be such a good thing at all, would it? Or we may think it's good to give someone a ride to the grocery store. While that may seem a kind gesture, what if they were going there as a suicide bomber? Would that still have been a good thing to do? Therefore, who among us is always able to define what is good? And thus, what gives us the right to say whether what God does is right or wrong? How can we presume to judge God 
since we are not omniscient to know whether destroying a certain person or group of people was the correct, correct action based on all the information that we don't have. All I'm saying is, God alone has the right to define what is good. With God seeing the whole picture, He never makes a mistake. There is no hindsight is 2020 when it comes to God. One thing God has never said in His life is, oops. Everything God does is motivated by his nature, his goodness, his justice, and his holiness. And that is why God can kill an individual or a group of people, and it can be a good thing. In fact, it should be considered the best thing if he does it. For me, I'll trust the judge of all the earth to always do the right thing. And Lord, you are trustworthy. Even when we do not understand you, you are trustworthy, you are faithful, and you always have our best in mind. I pray, Lord, that that would be driven into our spirits those times we walk those dark and lonely roads and heaven seems like brass. Let us remember this, Lord. Let, this, let us call this to mind and therefore have hope that great is your faithfulness. That's these things in Christ's name. Amen.